The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Ecclesiastes 2, 18-26. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone else who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to those ones who please him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lori. Well, good morning again. My name is Stacy Croft, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Presbyterian Church. And uh, so glad you're here with us. Welcome. If you're visiting this morning, uh, thanks for coming to church this morning and being with us. I'd love to meet you if I get a chance at the back afterwards, or if you got a chance to put your email or something into your contact info into the black book. I'd uh, love to get in touch with you. Um, and if you're here visiting and you're just kind of scared to even sign your name, hey, welcome. Love to chat with you or um, just hear what you think about what we're talking about. We've been looking at Ecclesiastes. And uh, it's a book that I think connects well to all the questions that we have about life. Very honest look at it. Uh, The Winter Olympics are on. Did y'all know that? (laughs) They've had like the worst ratings, so I don't know if anybody is watching them. Uh, But they have like 100 commercials, so if you want to buy something, it's probably a good thing to watch. They, uh, it's been interesting because I, don't, I haven't really watched them much, but I have an interest in the Olympics. I've always enjoyed the storylines and those kind of things. And uh, this year in particular, there's one that connects even to the Summer Olympics that I thought was probably the, the most interesting part to me was um, this guy from uh, a Tongan man, uh, this guy from Tongan, uh, and, and he is a flag bearer. And uh, I don't know if you saw him in the Summer Olympics, he carried the flag out. In the Winter Olympics, he did too, without a shirt on in like the, you know, sub-freezing temperatures in Korea. And so as he's carrying this, you know, everybody's like, oh, cool, that's great. Well, this guy has decided for 12 weeks, 12 weeks, he was going to train for cross-country skiing. 12 weeks. So, you know, it shows, uh, the storyline was hilarious because it just showed this guy who, you know, I don't know if you know where he comes from. It's a small island right off of New Zealand. Not a whole lot of snow at all. (laughs) 
So for him to go and show up and, and work for 12 weeks, he didn't even know quite how to get out of the gate. His skis got caught at one point. It showed him coming out of the gate, kind of turning sideways. He got, I think, he got, I cannot remember what he got out of 119 or something like that. He was like 112. Uh, I, but the thing that was so beautiful about this guy is all the way up, like, it just looks awful to me. Some of you may love cross-country skiing. It looks terrible to me. But he's doing it, and he just has the biggest smile on his face. And he finishes, and the number one person as well, the person who won the gold as well as, you know, a few other people just came up and just gave him the biggest hug because they were so inspired by not his skiing, but his joy, his absolute joy. And I cross-referenced that with, with one of my favorite movies um, of all time, some of y'all may be bored by or have never seen, called Chariots of Fire. It's actually based on a true story of the Olympics of two runners in particular that it pairs in the early 20th century summer games. And one of those named Harold Abrams, who was very honest in the way that he approached sport and the way he approached trying to utilize it for, to make him his work into it as a part of everything else in his life. And one of the things that he says right before he runs the 100 and wins the gold, by the way, says this. And now in one hour time, I will be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that lonely corridor, four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? I say that quote, it's been one of my favorite quotes of my life because it is so true about the effort and work put into it. Soon after, Harold Abrams would win the gold and yet his face would go slack. And he, you would even hear, and they, in the movie they even play it up a little bit more, they, they show just this kind of finishing of the race and almost this existential of what's next. Such a different picture in those two. What is it? And I think you read a passage like this one as we've looked in wisdom literature and you hear these things and you ask, what is the point of work? All the work going into it, if, if it's just gonna be something that we do, we accomplish and then it's done. Only to be passed on to the next. Even the Olympics, it's interesting. Or even in, in other sports, you have these announcers that are, have been a part of the game themselves and now are announcing the sport only to hear them say over and over, well, in my time, in my day, in the sport only to hand it off to someone else, what would it be like? There's a TED Talk even that was interesting, Barry Schwartz, who spoke about it, and he said, why do we work? So the work we do is challenging and stimulating, but why is it meaningful? Why do we put ourselves wholly into something? Why do we do that? And he says, a conclusion, he says, material rewards, as we should think about, material rewards are not a good reason, but why? Why are they not? Because work can be deceiving. Uh, look, we spend most of our hours of our entire life in a job. That, that, that doesn't just mean in an office, that means at a home. That could mean in a cubicle, that could mean in a coffee shop, it could mean a million different places, but you spend majority of your work hours at this place. Why is it meaningful? What gives it worth? What gives it value? Or is it one of those things at the end of it, you say, I've tried to justify my whole existence and it comes up lacking. 
The preacher in this, and wisdom literature is really good in the Bible because it it forces us to observe what is. You know, as I've said before, Proverbs and some of the other wisdom books tell you, hey, look at the ant, and they have you watch something. Differences in Ecclesiastes, the preacher says, look at my heart. Let me tell you what I've discovered. Let me tell you all the accomplishments, all the work that I've done that Solomon himself has put into Is it going to be worth it? Will he have justified his existence? That's what he's doing. It's really a a blessing that we get to sit with somebody and be so honest. That's what we really need is to actually sit with one another and and ask the question, are we feeling honest about about our life, about our existence into what we work, the thing that we put most of our time in? But how are we gonna just justify that? I think this passage is so beautiful because it gives us two givings. It asks us first the question, who do we give our work to? And secondly, how God gives us work. And it really sets it up to say, how do you actually have joy in it? Is it what you make? Is it your accomplishment? What is it? How do you have joy? Well, obviously in the beginning, it talks about the work we give to others. Right out. I hated all my... my, My toil in which I toil under the sun, toil meaning labor, work, putting it in, not just broadly, but what he's done, that I must leave it to the one coming after. You have this idea of someone, maybe this is you, maybe this has been you, sitting at your office, your boxes are packed, you've put that last little ficus plant into your box, you got your picture frames in there, Everything's ready to kind of move out. It's that day of retirement or leaving your job. And you sit for a moment and you take it in and you look at your desk and you look at the walls now bare, maybe with some nails sticking out of it. And you imagine for a moment, someone else is gonna have their pictures up here. Someone else is gonna have their folders and books on this wall. Someone else is gonna have a plant or something else in here and they're gonna do this job completely different. It forces you to go, what have I done? Who am I handing this over to? I remember talking to a pastor friend of mine and he said he had been in probably three or four different places and every time he left, he said the same thing. He said it was so difficult for him to give his ministry over to somebody else only to see it, whether it turned better or worse. But even if it turned better, it was difficult for him to swallow because it made him go, what have I done with it? What what do you do with your work? You, You think about that for a moment. At some point, all of us are gonna hand our work over to someone else. At some point. No matter what it is, In an office, in our home with our children, we're handing it off for someone else to do the work. And they're gonna have it. And whether they're a wise person or a foolish person, they're gonna run with it. And that's a scary thing. Think about this. Maybe as we just prayed, many of you are in the medical community or in in some other field. All the research that you've done Maybe you've put your heart into something that you said, this is, oh, I have the structure, I have the way to run this part of my job in the hospital that works so well. It functions perfectly. And yet you know at some point you're gonna transfer out of it. 
And someone's gonna come in and they're gonna have a completely different way of looking at it. Maybe they discard every bit of research that you've done. Is it all for naught? Maybe as a musician, you've worked tirelessly on those songs. How many hours, how many songs have gone through this community that haven't been published? Have we ever put that number up? That would be interesting. The number of music that people poured their life into that have been passed over and maybe even someone else picking up and taking it and carrying it forward only for that person to go, where's all my work? What do I have to show for? Maybe as an educator, you have a class, a class of students, and it's so difficult that every year they pass through you only to go, what happens to them next? Maybe it's just being with your children and you saying, you know what? At some point, I'm working myself out of a job and they leave and where do they go? What do we do with our work? How do we see that? We have to actually take it in. I love that he is, he is asking this question. Who's gonna take it up? It could be a wise person or a foolish person, yet he will be the master of all which I toiled for. Everything that I've done is gonna be passed on. And he even goes further to talk about how work for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Sorrow and vexation, they're references to that curse. They're references to the reality that we live under a curse. Now maybe here this morning, I don't know where you are with Christianity, but the Bible unfolds at the beginning that work was not cursed at first. It didn't feel the way that the preacher's describing. This person, the preacher, Solomon's actually extrapolating on what happened after. Because when God created this world, he created work actually to be a beautiful thing that had no toil connected to it. Any labor intensity was joyful. Those fleeting moments, you know, when you actually do your work and you feel like it's joy, not just because what you did, because what you're doing that feels meaningful. Those fleeting moments, that's, imagine, that is what work was meant to be all the time. And yet in chapter three of the Bible, the, very, the third chapter, the very beginning, Sin enters, there's a brokenness there that enters into work and it's, it claims that there are thorns and sweat and this vexation comes in and it becomes elusive. But there's this work that this is to be done, but it, it consistently feels like we just can't hold on to it. We can't feel the meaning from it. I love this quote from Bill Murray. In, he was interviewed in Vanity Fair and he was talking about his enormous popularity. And he was asked about his fame and celebrity and it said that Bill Murray, after asked that question, sat forward in his chair and he said this, you know, being famous is obviously not a devil's deal. I love the opportunity to work. It's the thing I do best. I'm much better person when I'm working. Now listen to this. I'm at my absolute best because it's the ultimate terror. It's the ultimate terror that I will not arrive. The ultimate terror that I am not, you know, that I am not. There's this vexation, this idea, this understanding. Bill Murray is saying it's beautiful that, that this idea that he's working. 
because of the ultimate terror that I am not? How do you answer that question? That curse that comes in on work that forces us to say, when you end the day, that you keep thinking about what you haven't done. Or even when you have accomplished what you have done, it pops up the next day as there's more to do. And it can suck the joy out of any part of that. And what I love that he says there, even in the night, talk about, talk about the wisdom of mining out our reality, our hearts in this. When he says in verse 23, even in the night, his heart does not rest. Does that not perfectly express every single one of us in this room, no matter what job you have, whether that is, is raising your children, whether that is sitting in a coffee shop, whether it is even my friend that I see every morning on a Sunday morning when I go in and they flick the lights on at the Starbucks and I walk in and I grab that coffee from this man. And he knows he's gonna have to do it the next day and the next and the next. And he does it. And yet there's no rest. It is that feeling of finishing and thinking I'm not finished. It's an anxiety. It's consistent. It reminds us that we have a longing for rest. We have a longing to feel that. It's that feeling that they stood that over and over that they wanted. They felt the curse of work, but they wanted to enter it back into that place of rest and work back into Eden, back in the garden, back in the place where they were known and their work was meaningful and they didn't have to look to it to tell them who they were. Isn't that what we want our, our work to do? To tell us who we are. And yet we can never find rest in that. Our heart is anxious. In the night, his heart does not rest. It's those moments you wake up in the middle of the night and you think of what you have to do and you cannot go back to sleep. It's graduating and looking down the corridor of maybe you have a job lined up, but the fear of what this is gonna mean for you. It is how work gets in there. And here's what I love he get, it takes him to. He, he says this in verse 20. There's this little embedded part that if you, if you run over it, you'll miss it. That he links and he says in verse 20, so I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Why does he say that? It'd be easy to say, oh, I'm just throwing, it's the cynicism again, isn't it? It's just the, the vanity, vanity, uh, it's all vanity, throw it away. But what he's actually saying here is how do you turn, how do you turn around and see the reality of it? it? The meaning in Hebrew is actually a turning to examine something new. It means to examine something new about what's in our heart, the meaningfulness. In other words, he's saying, I turned. Instead of trying to keep making my work mean something, he actually said, okay, I'm gonna experience the despair of me trying to squeeze it to death, to try and give me meaning, to make an idol of my work, to look to my work, to make me somebody. I'm gonna actually embrace despair in this moment. And it's a good thing when he talks about this, that he gave his heart up to it because he's turning from work to say, I need to turn to something new. That's the Hebrew. It's a turning aside from it. And what he does is to take up something else. He actually lets his heart sink on the hope that work is going to solve his ultimate problems. We need to do that. 
We need to allow ourselves for a moment to, to face the reality that if we place our ultimate hope in our work, it will not fulfill the promises that we give to it. It won't. And the preacher here is saying, give your heart, a, turn your heart aside to the despair, to letting hope die in that way. Because if you don't, you will live in ultimate sorrow and vexation. There's an Atlantic article that I think is so well put. It's called Beyond the Paycheck, Meaning of Full Work. Someone's talked about, it says, people used to be craftsmen and small landowners. So what you did as a small landowner was a whole variety of things. There was little division of labor. So you were taking care of livestock. You were growing the modest crops that you had. You were doing everything. And moreover, all of what you did was right outside of your yard. It was integrated with the rest of your life as a person, as a spouse, as a parent, as a member of a community. I don't want to romanticize the hard life that people had prior to the Industrial Revolution. Life was hard for a lot of people. It was too hard, but their means of livelihood was highly varied. And that allowed them to develop and deploy skills to get better and better at being a farmer or what have you. It wasn't just about the production. There's an integration. We have to ask, even in this from the Atlantic, is saying, is there a different way of integrating the understanding of our meaning of life and our work that just isn't our production? Because we will put it all in our accomplishment, our value in work. Work has value beyond that. And that's where I love where the preacher goes. He goes right from there. He says in verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw from the hand of God. He turns from who he gives his work to next. He turns aside. He turns from thinking, gosh, I gotta leave everything I've created, all of what I've built in my empire over to somebody else. To Instead of handing it to them, he turns to the hand of God. And he says, let me look at what God's hand has given me and work. See, God is in it. It's from his hand. Look, his hand, the actual word hand is to say it's a gift. It means it has value intrinsically. It isn't merely making work a spiritual thing. It's saying it's been given to us to make sense of, to integrate more into it, to actually understand the, the depth and beauty of things. What, what, what's so beautiful to me about when I wake up on a Sunday morning and I go to that Starbucks and his name is Brian and he's there and I either do a mobile order or I walk in, he always is handing me that, that cup and that breakfast sandwich that I get. And he's putting himself into that and yet to wake up the next day, yet to look at his, his work and, and it, it amazes me every time at his joy even, even welcoming me into his Starbucks. The way that he hands me that cup and it forces me in common grace and in the grace that's common around me to go, how much joy do I actually have in my craft? Not just that, oh, here's another Starbucks put out, here's another sandwich, but that there's something in the way that he, as he makes that, that he puts joy into the craft of it. 
The preacher is saying to us that work isn't just a spiritual thing. It is a value because it's given from God to us. It's something that he has handed to us. And if we all just stay in the world of what we're gonna provide, what we're gonna leave for those behind us, our hands are not strong enough to hold that. It is only this, and this is where the idolatry grows. This is why he's saying it only makes sense if you see verse 25, apart from him, that meaning God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? If you take God out of the equation, work becomes God itself. And if you're here this morning visiting and you may be wondering again or maybe exploring this or maybe you're hearing about Christianity and what it means, what it means is we take easily those good gifts. We can take that thing that God gives us from his hand and we can try and make it an ultimate thing. And that is what we do with work. We try and reverse the curse that has been put on work. We put everything into it to try and beat it back to try and change it, to make it and manipulate it, to work it for us in our ways, only to cause us vexation, sorrow, and to say, how is the person after us gonna handle it? And then we wonder why we ask the questions of, I only have this to justify my existence, but will I? We're left with that question. How do you answer it? but to turn back and to say, if it is a gift from God, if it is from him, it puts work in its right positioning. It puts it below him. It puts, puts it below the ultimate worker, the one who created things around us to enjoy them. Notice the things that he brings up are eating and drinking and enjoyment. They're things that we oftentimes kind of brush past. If you wonder why tasting such rich foods and enjoying things shouldn't be an end in of themselves, it should be an arrow, it's because God has made them for us to enjoy them, to, to, to breathe in, to live in, to take it in. And apart from God, we can't have enjoyment. I love how C.S. Lewis said this. He said, when talking about good work as separate from good works, he said, when our Lord provided a poor wedding party with an extra glass of wine all around, he was doing good works, but also good work. It was a wine really worth drinking. The apostle says everyone must not only work, but to produce what is good. In other words, it means that the only way that we can actually take what we're doing and enjoy and perfect our craft, no matter what that craft is, is to look beyond it to the one who has given it to us and has made us in his handiwork. It will not make sense. You will try and make it and force it to give you meaning and it will not. I swear to you it will not. And you have felt that before. It could be as a parent doing that in a child. It could be as a medical professional in the hospitals across the street. It could be as a student that way, that way, or that way. It could be in any way you think. If you try and put your whole self into it, it will not do what you need. And there are so many subversive ideas we have in our culture about that. It says that we are to enjoy it. That means enjoy is a word that means put joy back into it. And it doesn't, notice, it doesn't say find something that you enjoy. It says enjoy it, put joy back into it. There's a, there's a culture 
in our, in our culture, there's this idea of doing what you love. And it could be a very damaging idea. I read an article that's really interesting in Slate Magazine. It talked about this. That if we're careful, we're just gonna simply look for things. We do what we love instead of loving what we do, where we are in the moment. Listen, work can become divided into two opposing classes. That which is lovable, creative, intellectual, socially prestigious, and that which is not repetitive, unintellectual, undistinguished. Those in the lovable work camp are vastly more privileged in terms of wealth, social status, education, those kind of things. If we're not careful, um, <clears throat> we can move into easy, easy, um, easy biases and those kind of compromising things and not actually enjoy those. What can expunge our joy and actually putting joy into it is if we think we have the job that's just gonna be right. Now, I'm not saying you may be in a job. You may be in a difficult place. You may need to move on. You may have a boss that's very difficult. You may have a company or some sort of place that is hard to work in. You may have an environment at home or wherever that may be that is inescapable. But the question isn't doing what you love in terms of skipping to the next thing that just draws in your affections. Yes, that can be helpful. But you know as well as I do, even when you find that job that is your greatest thing you've ever found, and we idealize it so much in our culture, you still get into it and find yourself trying to give it, giving you affections that it cannot. You try and force that job to make you feel something it cannot, even if it's your dream job. Wouldn't it be amazing if we as Christians understood that God's order, the way he has made it, by giving us this gift of work is to not do what we love and say, God, what you gave me here is good, but what you gave me here isn't. That's what we're saying when we say we only do what we love. But some of us may be in jobs right now that we don't love, that isn't our dream job. And how do you go into that as well as one that you may say, this is where I'm gonna be for several years and enjoy it. It's only knowing that it is from God's hand, not the circumstances, but the gift of the work itself. Because that's the only way you and I can go into it and actually say, you know what? No matter if I'm making a coffee at Starbucks or I'm resuscitating somebody across the street, or I'm a student, or I'm at home trying to get my children to do their work, whatever it may be, that we may put ourselves into it with joy, that we go to it with joy, because here's the ultimate question. The only thing that can tell you how you're loved is the Lord. Your work cannot consistently tell you your love because you have to go to it over and over to say, do you still love me? Am I still worth it? Am I still valuable? The reversal here is God is saying, your work is valuable because you are valuable and you can become a master of your craft and enter into it with every fiber of your being. Notice even the separation here at the end. For the one who pleases him, God has given him wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. 
Look, he's not saying that none of us are sinners. He's saying those of us who have chosen the path to actually try and make work our world instead of saying, this is God's world and his work and how do I enter into it? It's a whole paradigm shift. It's a whole difference of work and developing our craft. Let me ask you this. How are you moving into your jobs, wherever they are, and stretching yourself in them? Exploring the corners of them that maybe you haven't because you've kind of dismissed it as, oh, this is a job, this is routine, this is what I accomplished, this is the next step or the next level for me to get here or there. Have you stopped to think like the preacher does? Hey, you're gonna leave it to somebody. How are you actually taking up the joy as it is a gift, no matter where you are at this moment, to you, to know your value of who you are? so that you can explore it. You can look in the different corners of your job and your work and say, how do I make this better? If I know that I don't have to look to my job to tell me I'm loved, but I'm loved by a God who made me to go to my work, doesn't that give you freedom to enjoy your job, to put your joy back into something that so often we try and give ultimate worth? Look, the beauty of what we're doing this morning and the beauty of coming to this table is that there's a work that's been done. There's a work that has been done on our behalf. And it would be easy to come to this table and think we've earned it or we've accomplished something. But this table shows us something beautiful. It shows us body and blood. See, we typically think in our work, we're gonna give our blood, sweat, and tears, right? We always talk about that. There has only been one person who has literally given his blood for his work. And it give value and meaning, Jesus. Do you realize that when it says in this passage about sorrow, for all his days are full of sorrow and his work of vexation, do you realize that Jesus, the point, the purpose, the difference of Christianity and the joy is that Jesus came in flesh to be in that sorrow. He actually took on the name man of sorrows. He sweat drops of blood because of the vexation of his task and yet he shed his blood and gave his body so that we may live in him. That is his work. He is the only one that reversed the curse. When you come and taste this, you're tasting the actuality that every toil that you're a part of has been reversed by this man, by this savior, by this redeemer, Jesus. And the joy that you have, the joy in his work, you're also tasting this. His joy wasn't just doing his work, his joy was you. You realize the gift in his work was you. In his nail-pierced hands, in what he did in his work, it says that he despised the shame and he took up the cross because you are his joy. If that doesn't transform the way you go to work, what will? It is only value given to you that you may show value in your work and in that joy. Prepare your heart this morning as you do. Hey, be honest like the preacher. 
I would encourage you to be honest as you come to this table. Don't come to this table thinking, I feel perfect joy in my work. No, you don't. (laughs) I know you don't. None of us do. There's only been one that has experienced full, real joy in his work. That's why we come to this table. That's why the wine that he gave us is good wine. Because it's his blood. Prepare your heart for that. And if you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I I really appreciate those thoughts. I don't know if I really believe that this work is valuable, that what Jesus has done and who he is. Hey, I, I respect that. I would encourage you, don't come and take from this table. Remain in your seat or come forward, fold your hands and receive prayer and just observe, see what's going on. Ask the question, but don't engage. Engage in the question of, more of who is this Jesus? Why is work connected to faith in Christ? And how does it give me lasting joy and not temporary joy? So as we do this, let's stand together. And it's both in your bulletin and on the screen behind me.